0: Last week we continued our look at the Gospel of John, where we are still in the densely packed prologue. Verses 1 through 5 of John 1 establish Christ as the eternal word, the Logos, who was face to face with the Father from eternity past. It was through him that all things were created. <clears throat> in verses, pardon me, <clears throat> in verses 6 through 13 which we looked at last week, they established Christ as the source of all life and light. We also learned that John the Baptist, the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets, was sent to make straight the way of the Lord, preaching a message of repentance, that the hearts of men might be prepared to receive the Messiah upon his arrival, which was right at the threshold. Christ came to his own creation and his own people rejected him. But, praise God, at the end of verse 13, we see that God set apart for himself a remnant that received him, that believed in his name. And it is not because they were born in the right family or were in any way superior morally or by their will to others or were compelled by other men to believe in Christ. It was the work of God. Without God authoring, initiating, completing salvation, our hope of being saved is precisely zero. Now I need to pause here for just a moment to clarify a part of last week's message. Last week's passage was centered on the idea of light. One of the things I mentioned is how John uses the word light in two different ways. <clears throat> Without taking up too much time, I want to be very clear on this issue and as it deals with the very nature of Christ, which I do not want to uh, askew in any way, shape, or form. Firstly, there is no life without Christ. Not one blade of grass, not one bacterium, not a single sea creature or bird would have life without Christ. Furthermore, not a single human being would have life without Christ, physically or spiritually. Second, there is no light without Christ either. Not a single star would shine, not a single candle would burn apart from Jesus Christ. And the same could be said spiritually in the heart of man. There is no light without Christ. Apart from Christ, the darkness in man would be absolute. The distinction I was trying to draw last week is simply this Christ is the source of all light he is unique Men, on the other hand are simple reflectors of that light we have no source of light within us unlike christ whose very nature is light john the baptist came to point this out to the people that they would repent and prepare their hearts to receive that true light which was about to dawn on the world With that cleared up, hopefully, we will finish our look at the prologue of the Gospel of John by reading and considering verses 14 through 18 of John 1. So if you'll join me, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14 through 18. This is the word of the true and living God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that without your spirit guiding us, that our look into these words are futile, but we ask that your spirit would have free reign here in our midst, would open our eyes and our hearts to the truth of your word this morning. I pray that, uh, I would get out of the way and that Christ would have preeminence in all things said and thought about here this morning. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Of this entire prologue, I find the first five words of verse 14 to be the most staggering of all. That's just my opinion personally, but that's how they strike me. We have this logos, he who created all things by the word of his power face-to-face with God from all eternity, and he became one of us. I can hardly think the thought without choking up out of, and I don't know what it is, awe or gratitude or a sense of my own unworthiness or a glimpse of the love of God or something. These five simple words, and the word became flesh. That's a sermon All by itself. So I want to thank you for coming this morning. (laughs) Now I'll keep going. Anyway, we're going to go through these five verses, phrase by phrase. I don't know how else to consider uh, a passage that's this densely uh, infiltrated with truth and immense dignity without just going through step by step. So, verse fourteen, and the word became flesh. What do we do with these five words other than fall on our knees before God in thankfulness? The truth found in these five words is the only hope for mankind. It is my only hope. It is your only hope. Something ought to jump out at us in verse 14 that is well worth considering. Up until, verse 14, all the way through, verses 1 through 13, John is speaking of the word, the logos, the Lord Jesus Christ, with carefully chosen words, particularly verbs, which, for those of you that care, I think, Pete, me, you might be the only one. Um, particularly verbs that, he, that, he's, that, are, that he's using that are timeless as he's referring to the word. In other words, John is using every tool at his disposal to demonstrate to the reader that the Logos is eternal. The Logos never came into being. There was never a point at which the Logos was not. But at the beginning of verse 14, the eternal and the temporal meet. For the very first time, John speaks of the Logos in terms of becoming. And he does this to describe how the eternal word, at a distinct point in the past, about 2,000 years ago, took on flesh. He had not taken on flesh before, even though he always existed. At the instant Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit of God, at that very instant, the word became flesh and the universe would never be the same. In Christian circles, this event is called the Incarnation, which we celebrate, honestly, about nine months late at Christmas. You'll see in this word incarnation, the root carn, C-A-R-N, from which we get the word carnal, referring to the body. At the Incarnation, Jesus, the eternal Logos, took on a body like our body that he might live amongst us, teach us, show us the Father, and ultimately die for us, securing our salvation if we will only believe in his name. This phrase, the word became flesh, decisively puts to rest a whole bunch of heresies. The heresies that you and in- I encounter today most commonly at least in our community are Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are false teachings that are not new. They have been around since the earliest days of the Christian church and they've already been deeply examined and soundly debunked in the first 3 or 4 centuries after Christ. One of these is called Apollinarianism which taught that Jesus was half god half-man. The early church fathers looked at that and said, no, that's, that's not right. That is not what scripture is teaching about Jesus. Then along came docetism, deeply influenced by Greek philosophy, taught that Jesus only appeared to be human, but was actually some sort of phantom or ghost. After all, they thought everything of the flesh is evil, so how could Jesus actually have become flesh? Then along comes Eutychianism. That's the most fun one to say. And Eutychianism falsely taught that in Jesus, God took, like if you're baking a cake, God took divinity and he took humanity and he put them together and he mixed them all up and came up with some new third substance that had never existed before. A sort of a God-man mixture. So in this heresy, you don't really have divinity or humanity, but some new third thing. The church considered that and said, that's not right either. If Jesus is not truly God, he doesn't have the right, or he doesn't have the power to save. If Jesus is not truly human, he doesn't have the right to represent humanity in his atoning work. And then along comes a fellow named Nestorian, and he taught something called Nestorianism, which was just the opposite. It it just said that Jesus was two entirely different beings who just happened to be living inside one body, one divine person, one human person. Finally, the church at two successive councils arrived at what had been since that time the orthodox view of the scriptural description of Jesus. Now, the church, I want to be very clear, didn't invent this view. It searched the scriptures to find how to be consistent with what the Bible taught about who Jesus is. This view had been there from the start, but we have to remember the church was dealing with these heresies, these false teachings... So they had to come up with a statement that was true to scripture. And so far it has stood the test of time. The church declared that Jesus Christ is truly man and truly God. Two natures in one person without mixture, confusion, separation, or division. So when you are dealing with Jesus Christ, you are dealing with one person. And within that one person, there are two natures, one deity, the almighty, eternal creator of the universe, the Logos, and one human, Jesus of Nazareth, who dwelt among us. And that brings us to the next part of the phrase, and he dwelt among us. The word dwelt in this phrase helps us to understand, I think, in a broader scope, what John is telling us here in verse 14. The word dwelt in verse 14 means tabernacled or pitched his tent. So we might read, and the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us, his tent being his human body. A good verse to consider, which brings this out really well, is Revelation chapter 21 verse 3. It reads, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So you see the word tabernacle, and you see the word dwell, and they are cognate. They, Those words are linked in the Greek. In the book of Exodus, which we recently spent about a year going through, God gives instructions to Moses to build a tabernacle which was to be set up in the middle of the Hebrew camp. The Almighty was willing to humble himself and dwell in a tent among his people, not having a permanent home, sharing in their time of wandering. Jesus was willing to humble himself and dwell in a body like our body among his people. Not having a permanent home. Sharing in our wandering. Let's look at several scriptures which draw draw this truth out. James already read one of them this morning. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. I'm reading from the NASB. Not because the other translations are not good, but they're a little bit difficult to to work through. It's a very difficult passage to translate. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves... Which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. And then uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. Somebody had said, hey, Jesus, I would like to follow you. And Jesus answered and said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was willing to wander with his people. God did not leave us alone to wander aimlessly in these tents of flesh these weak vessels. No, but because of his great love for us, he also humbled himself to dwell in a tent right in our midst and to identify with our sufferings. And he did not somehow come as an adult king adorned with privilege and wealth, but as a baby, born amongst the barn animals, helpless, entirely dependent on others for his care as he grew into adulthood. Then, he even humbled himself to the worst death men have ever imagined, death by crucifixion, as the song goes, if that isn't love. Anyway, the idea of a tabernacle carries with it the idea of temporality. The tabernacle was never meant to be a permanent dwelling. This is why King David, when he had opportunity, wanted to build a permanent, glorious tabernacle, a temple for a dwelling place for the Lord. It turned out that his son Solomon built the temple there in Jerusalem. But centuries later, and we'll get to this in chapter 2 in a few weeks' time, Jesus himself stood beside that beautiful temple and said these words, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, the disciples figured out later that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. We could continue with this thought with passages throughout the rest of the New Testament. It's it's a theme that runs through the New Testament, but we won't have time. We'll leave it there for now. I'll let you look into those references to the temple. Verse 14 goes on to say, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory is weightiness. For John to say that the disciples beheld his glory is almost like saying they felt the weight of his glory pressing on them all of the time. Even though the word beheld means perceived with the eyes, we know that every minute the disciples were with Jesus, there was something in the way he conducted himself. Something in the way he spoke and taught. Something in the way he prayed and wept that the disciples beheld and felt the weightiness of because this man was the eternal God. I think John in this passage is primarily referring to the Mount of Transfiguration when just for a moment the Lord opened, as it were, the veil of his humanity to show Peter, James, and John his divine glory as a light shining brighter than the sun. The final phrase of verse 14 also says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. John will expand on this idea more later, but let's just note that John says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. It has been said that grace, and I I like this, it's not often that an acronym works out well. I think it should come up. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And I think that's a good way to remember it. Later on, Jesus himself would declare that he was not only full of truth, but that he is truth. That carries us into verse 15. John the Baptist bore witness of him and cried out. So this again is John the Baptist, not John the author. John the Baptist, it said, bore witness of Christ. He gave his sworn testimony, as it were, about Jesus because that was the ministry God had given him to do. And John cried out. This was an open, public message that God had for all those with ears to hear. This was not a secret religion. And what did John say? He said, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. We know from the other Gospels that John the Baptist was older than Jesus. Not much, maybe a few months. But John says here that Jesus came to be Genemai before John. What John is saying here is that Christ was doing the work of God long before John came on the scene. We see Christ throughout the Old Testament in various methods and manifestations, accomplishing the work of the Father as the Logos, the Word of God, way before John existed and even before the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. We see this cryptic character show up at key points in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. But the angel of the Lord speaks words only God himself would speak. Just to be sure we're not confused about the nature of who John is talking about, he adds that Jesus was before John. This word was is in a form that implies that Jesus was eternally before John the Baptist. So it is no wonder that the Logos, Jesus Christ, had already been encountered by the folks that he was preaching to in the Old Testament, doing God's work. But he had now come for the very first time as a human being. He took on flesh. Verse 16, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. John has just explained to us at the end of verse 14 that Jesus is full Of grace and truth. Now John tells us that we have all received of his fullness. And that idea of fullness carries with it complete satisfaction. Like if you sit down at a meal and you get all that you need to be entirely satisfied. That is what we find in Christ. In his fullness we are entirely satisfied. We are all recipients of the grace of God. Even grace For grace, as John adds at the end of verse 16. The idea is grace on top of grace on top of grace. Just when you think that God couldn't bless you any further, he steps in and pours out more grace on you. This brings to mind this whole idea that theologians throughout the centuries have called double imputation. Here I am on one hand, in desperate trouble because of my sin there is christ on the other hand having lived a perfect life the new testament says even that we are saved by his life not just by his death but saved by his life so there he is without sin deserving the riches of god's blessing and then he takes my place under god's wrath at the cross and he gives to me his life. The greatest exchange mankind has ever known. Double imputation. That's mercy, and that's grace. Further, because in him is not only the fullness of grace, but the fullness of truth, he removes the scales from our eyes so that we can know and understand. However limited our faculties and for some of us, more limited than others. That's okay. But so that we can understand what he has done. That the Father might be glorified. It's a remarkable statement. Verse 17. The law was given through Moses. But grace and truth. There's those ideas again. Came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. One of the great insights of the Apostle Paul was this idea of the law as a tutor, bringing us to Christ. Or some of your translations might read schoolmaster or guardian. Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, they read like this. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Sam, you're a teacher. But this word isn't talking about a teacher. The Greek word for tutor or schoolmaster means literally something like child guider. It's not a good English word, but that's what the word kind of means, child guider. For Paul, when we look at how he went to school and what school looked like for him, most kids just learned at home, but Paul had, was from a fairly wealthy family. He had the privilege of going to a school, So for Paul, this tutor was not a teacher standing at the front of the class. Rather, this is the person that everyone fears standing at the back of the class, making sure the students behave and bringing swift and sharp punishment to those who don't. Holding a little stick in the hand, right? And he's watching those little guys. And it's like, if you stray, um, you know, I'm going to fix your knuckles for you. He's a child guider. Maybe we should bring those guys back. Yeah. (laughs) I volunteer. (laughs) I'll probably get fired because of that. Get canceled because of that statement, won't I? But anyway, he's there to make sure the children behave, that they continue to move in the right direction toward knowledge. So we see in this job of schoolmaster, of child guider, this economy of blessing and cursing. If you do well, you will be blessed. If you do not, you will be cursed. It was necessary in this system, of course, that there be forgiveness. Because no one could live up to the perfect standard of the law. That is why God instituted a system of sacrifices, and offerings. There is so much more to be said here, but we're running out of time. I'll just point out to you the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 10 and the first seven verses, because I think it speaks to this whole idea uh, more clearly than I could ever. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things Can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible... For goodness sake, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. It says grace and truth, these pair of ideas keep coming back, came through Jesus Christ. Well, that's what Hebrews 10 was just talking about, wasn't it? The law proper. The systems of rules and punishment for breaking those rules was not a system of grace. Having said that, we see the grace of God throughout the Old Testament in sharp contrast to the rigid system put in place by the law. But that immeasurable grace came in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, who reveals the truth of the law as a mere shadow of of the good things to come, namely, the forgiveness and atonement found at the cross of Calvary. We so often get that backwards in terms of salvation. In fact, it's a common understanding out in the world when it comes to salvation and eternal life, that if we just do enough good things, somehow we'll please God enough and he'll weigh them one against the other and say, hey, well, you're not as bad as, you know, it could have been, welcome. And that's not at all what God is teaching about eternal life. What God is teaching about eternal life is none of us measure up, and we all need Jesus. And then, once we are in Christ, now we can live by the power of the Holy Spirit, doing that which the law of Christ requires. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. I'll be honest with you, this verse deserves a lot more time than we are giving it this morning. I suppose I could say that about probably all the other verses. But this verse in particular has some details about it that are much more complex in their nature in its nature and it really requires a more in-depth look but for this morning let's just briefly consider the most basic elements of this verse no one has seen god at any time this is a bare-faced statement of fact by the apostle leaving no room for debate no one that's not very many people has seen god at any time that covers a lot of time Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, it's hard to reconcile this statement in our minds. Who walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day? Who appeared to Abraham bringing promises for his seed? Who wrestled with Jacob when he was returning to Esau? Who appeared to Moses in the burning bush? And what about the visions of the prophets, particularly Ezekiel? In his revelation? I'll let you answer those questions on your own, but with this in mind, what we know for certain is that God, in his pure divinity as the Father, has not and cannot be seen by any man. We also know that the Lord manifested his presence many times in the Old Testament that men could see. So this one must have been the Logos the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ sent from the Father to do his work and bring his word at important points in his redemptive plan. And I think this is exactly the point John is trying to make. The Logos, who was face to face with God and who was God, is the one who alone reveals the Father to us. Now, into controversy, but I'll avoid it as much as I could. The next phrase, the only begotten son. The unbegotten father and the only and eternally begotten son have always been. This is not a begetting like a parent begets a child by bringing them into existence. This is like the sun in the sky that begets light. As long as the sun has existed in the sky, it has begotten the light that shines. This is one of those texts in which exists a significant variant in the Greek manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts, and I'm not saying the best, but the earliest ones, including the one I had uh, shown you on the screen last week, they read the only begotten God This is why some of our most recent Bible translations read the way they do. For example, the NIV, the ESV, and the CSB all read, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God. Or the uh, New American Standard in 1995 reads, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. Who is in the bosom of the Father. Or more recently, the New American Standard from 2020 no one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. Now, this doesn't change our understanding of what the Apostle John is saying here. We can't miss it. But this earlier reading does seem to declare more directly that the Son is God in a way that brooks no argument whatsoever. And I'll leave that discussion there by just reinforcing again in your minds that this variant does not change one bit who we believe Jesus is or our understanding of the text. It says, he is in the bosom of the Father. This phrase brings back the idea of the logos, being face-to-face with the Father. This is a position of deep intimacy between the father and the son. We might think of it today as holding a loved one close, as in an embrace or a hug. It is how we might cling to a parent or a child after a long period of absence. I watched a short video on YouTube the other day of a soldier that had been away from home for 18 months hadn't seen his, his wife and his family and his sister and he comes walking up the driveway and you can just see his wife runs to him and holds him and does not want to let him go. It's been 18 months, I'm not letting you go. And you could just see this desperate clinging and that's the type of intimacy that we have between the father and the son. This, this closeness, this depth of love that, that is, it's hard for us to, to put into words. But that's what this phrase is talking about, this son who is in the bosom of the father. There's such a deep and close love relationship there that uh, our human experience has, has difficulty uh, sort of getting to the depth of, of what's happening there. And it says that the son has declared him. the son has declared the father well folks we made it to the final phrase and the word that i would like to look at here just briefly is this word declared it is the word ultimately exegeted the son exegeted the father when we study the bible we want to be those who exegete the true meaning out of the text We want to take out of the text what the author, in this case John and God, ultimately, intends. This is the opposite of eisegeting, which is reading into the text what we want it to say. And when we look at the life of Christ and how he relied on the Father at every moment we see how the Lord Jesus Christ reveals to us, exegetes to us who the Father truly is. We cannot see him with our eyes, John has just declared, but in Jesus, we can know exactly who the Father is because Christ is the exact image of his substance. Jesus said, even this, he who has seen me, Has seen the Father. There's just no getting around the clarity of texts like this. God reveals Himself to mankind in creation, God reveals Himself to mankind in Scripture, and He has revealed Himself to mankind ultimately in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every possible way that God can. He's revealing himself to mankind. What does this tell us? God the Father wants us to know him. God the Father wants us to know him. It is actually the very reason we have been created. We get distracted with everything else. And some of those distractions are necessary and even commanded by Scripture for us to conduct ourselves in certain ways. But I think we need to be reminded from time to time that our purpose in being created is to know God. And of course, that only happens through the Lord Jesus Christ. I think St. Augustine was the one who wrote, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And we will find our rest in him when we repent of our sins and place our lives into the pierced hands of Jesus Christ through simple trust. We'll close with a quote from uh, Martin Luther. With all of his other faults, trust me, I know them, Dr. Luther had a very clear understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. So Luther, and we'll close with this quote, he wrote the following in in his commentary on the Gospel of John. If Christ is not true and natural God, born of the Father in eternity and creator of all creatures, we are doomed. For what would Christ's suffering and death avail me? if Christ were merely a human being like you and me. As such, he could not have overcome devil, death, and sin. He would have proved far too weak for them and could never have helped us. No, we must have a Savior who is true God and Lord over sin, death, devil, and hell. If we permit the devil to topple this stronghold from us, so that we disbelieve his divinity, then his suffering, death, and resurrection profit us nothing. I think in the Gospel of John, John lays it out for us. If we worship Christ as anything but God, we're committing idolatry. And if we worship anything else other than Christ, we are committing idolatry. And so John narrows it right down for us. It's like all of Christ. That's where we find our rest. That's where we find the perfect image of the substance of the Father. I'm sure I said much of that poorly. I hope you'll forgive any place I was not entirely clear. But the doctrine of Christ is so central to all of the other doctrines that we find in Scripture that I want to be very clear there. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we look at your word and we recognize that you have done all you could to reveal to us the Lord Jesus Christ in your word. Thank you that you did not leave us without the light of your Scripture. That we can... In this time and place, we, we're so blessed with the riches of your word. We can open the scripture at any time and seek out the face of Christ. So we ask this morning, as poorly as I may have um, said the things that I desired to say, to, to reveal Christ, uh, the Christ of scriptures to these folks I just ask that it is by your spirit that you would open the scriptures to each one of them. That where I might have been in error, that you would um, correct me, but where the scriptures are clear about who Jesus is as the eternal God, the eternal Logos, the savior of mankind, that we would embrace this truth. And not just so that we can have it in our heads, but It is a truth that transforms how we walk in this world. We pray that we would be the hands and feet of Christ, this eternal one who has promised us the spirit to give us the strength to live in a way that is pleasing to the Father, not because of who we are, but simply because of who Jesus is. So we ask that you would help us to be obedient. You would help us to be Uh, submissive to your word, to your spirit, in the days to come, the days and the weeks to come. I pray for travel mercies for those that are uh, traveling, uh, for Sam and Olivia and the little one, and for others that are heading uh, home to Le a lot of folks driving, that you would uh, just have your good hand of grace upon them, that they would not only be safe, but they they would have a good time of fellowship uh, with one another and uh, be lifted up in the word of God and we thank you for all these things in Jesus name amen